Hello and welcome to the Jerems Miller Knowledge Hub Technical Forum um, podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Pete Miller, Director and um, Head of Corporate Tax in Jerems Miller. And our topic for today is the substantial shareholdings exemption, which is particularly topical um, following the recent upper tribunal decision of M Group Holdings. So um, we thought we'd um, the SSE would be a good topic um, for today. Um, we are live on LinkedIn. So anybody joining us through LinkedIn, if you leave any comments, um, we'll be able to see them <coughs> through our platform and we can make the um, make the session a bit more interactive, which would be wonderful. Um, anybody listening after the fact, we've also um, got some notes. If uh, anybody wants to email us, we're happy to share those with you as well. Um, and so we thought we'd sort of start out. Of M, M Group was the main reason for the for the podcast, but we thought we'd start out with the basics. Um, talk a bit about how um, structures can be designed on to hive down and sell. Uh, certain trades and then we'll talk about M Group Holdings and the case and um, what we thought of the decision on that one. Um, so to kick us off, what is substantial shareholdings exemption? Why have we got it and what does it achieve I guess is the question. Mm. So <laughs> <laughs> substantial shareholdings exemption. It, I always find substantial a very interesting word here because most of the time we talk about substantial like BADR and what's a trading company. Substantial it's 80% is the general test. Substantial here is 10%. Um, except so, for the bit where it's 20. <laughs> except for that bit where it's 20. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting because substantially in this case is actually quite small. Um, mm. I mean, a lot of the companies that we deal with, especially when you're talking hive down and sale, actually you've probably got a hundred percent in most cases. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it is it worth me running through a tiny bit of the background on this? Yeah, because um, because because being a little longer in the tooth than you, um, I I was <laughs> I was there, I was around. Um, so around 2000, 2001, there are all sorts of initiatives um, that were designed essentially. Um, the, the sort of phrase that got used was about making the UK a better place to do business. Um, and, and sort of we referred often to UK PLC and what's good for UK PLC. Um, so a number of things happened. Some of them, to be brutally honest, not exactly well thought out in in in, in sort of terms of, of how they interacted with each other. So in Finance Act 2002, for example, we got the uh, substantial shareholding exemption, uh, which pretty much was an exemption for trading groups selling trading subsidiaries, um, which essentially said if you sell a trading subsidiary, then you don't pay corporation tax or any gains. And on the other hand, you also had um, the, the, the first version of the corporate intangibles regime, which until 2016 was unbelievably generous as far as things like goodwill were concerned, which actually meant that although as a seller, you wanted to sell shares in your trading subsidiary because you didn't pay any tax, a buyer wanted to actually buy the goodwill and intangibles of your business out directly out of the company because they were able to amortize those things. So the policy initiatives weren't exactly well thought out in, in, in terms of the way they interacted. Um, there was a long period of consultation before the substantial shareholding exemption came along. And to be honest, most of us thought we were going to get some kind of rollover relief like the capital gains rollover relief we've got for assets. So if you bought new shares in, an, an, in, in something relevant over a period of time, you would essentially be able to roll gains over into those but in so we were actually genuinely shocked um a number I, I certainly was and people i worked with um were genuinely shocked when the government said what they've decided upon is a complete exemption um hmm. i think i think it's a good idea um so the initial version was you had to be a trading group selling shares in a trading subsidiary and the substantial shareholding was a shareholding that you had held for um at least 12 months and was at least a 10% holding. Um, things have changed slightly. So you no longer need to be a trading group. So you could have a group that is not a trading group or that 
is selling its only trading subsidiary, and that would still qualify for the SSE. And of course, that started. That's where um, the M Group case kind of comes along. In, in without leaping into that case, that is a, a, a case in, in a sense of a a holding company selling its sole trading subsidiary, which since uh, 2017 will now qualify for the SSE. Prior to that, the the, the group or company that was left behind also had to be a trading company. Yeah. Which really meant the relief or the exemption was only available to larger groups. Um, so that's kind of the genesis. Um, and yep. it's, you, you'll see in there this, the sort of standard approach that trading is good and anything that's not trading is clearly not good enough for any kind of relief, which is something I find a bit bizarre in our tax code. Say, why, why is that why why can't we have a property investment group which could there's plenty of very <sighs> large property investment groups yeah um it's actually quite a funny one because if you go back 150 or more years um the tax code actually tended to be much more the other way that the, the kind of um trade was something that gentlemen didn't sully their hands with so um <laughs> it was it was kind of in property taxes that were the the, the thing um yeah. because only only wealthy people paid tax there was no such thing as a tax paying middle class pretty much um and and it was it, it did seem very much the other way that nobody ca- kind of gave much of a a, a a bother about trading stuff and it was all about um property owning and so the old mm-hmm. schedule a that very few people will remember now was actually a tax on the rents you could have received had you rented your land out. So it was almost like a capital tax on land. Yeah. I mean, we're going back a very, very long way now. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't um, know what you're talking about. No, exactly. <laughs> but so, so I mean, there's there's a reason, for example, when you look at it, that um, schedule the scheduler system that we used to have until 2009, uh, A, was property b was woodlands or something c i can't even remember um d was trade you know mm. it's, it's so but but uh, obviously all of that's gone now and um I, th- I think the realization has been that what drives the economy of any country certainly in the developed world uh is trade is yeah. small people and bigger people but but lots of businesses most businesses start small um setting up a trade and producing something or providing a service and mm. employing people and all of that good stuff. So they're trying to encourage people to trade rather than yeah. to invest in property, which perhaps is seen as not really achieving the same kind of economic aims. Yeah, because I, I guess it's a bit of a side note, but I guess when you're talking about property, there's there's all the helping people get on the property ladder and and that kind mm. of thing whereas if you yes. if you're encouraging landlords and by giving them some investments then uh or sort of giving them some reliefs from investments then obviously it's um kind of contradictory to that aim i guess yes um, yes i think that's right um okay. so but, but so so therefore we do have this substantial shareholding exemption that basically only applies to a company selling at least a well uh, uh, selling a sh- shares in a trading company because you only have to hold 10 percent of the shares to qualify uh obviously it's not necessarily a trading subsidiary it could be a joint venture it could just be a portfolio holding yeah okay should we have a look at some of the conditions that are yes certainly. I do yes, have, let's do that I, I don't generally think sort of a podcast type um event is something for slides but as i have some slides from a previous presentation i thought i'll Put those okay, up for anybody yes. who's watching via video. Um, so I need to present that rather than. Okie doke. <clears throat> so, a what? What do you actually need to hold ten percent of? That's the first thing. So here we are talking about we're in TCGA as you'd expect, and it's Schedule Seven AC that covers the substantial shareholdings exemption. Um, so we're talking about holding a 10% holding and actually what that means is there's there's a number of different things we need to look tests we need to look at as to what we we hold 10% of so we need to hold 10% of the ordinary share capital that's by nominal value uh we need to hold 10% of profits available for distribution to equity holders which i guess can lead you down another rabbit hole of 
which we, we should mention. <laughs> but let's let's do the third bullet point first. Yeah, and um, and the third and final bullet point is the beneficially entitled to ten percent of assets on a winding up. So that's our capital. And and um, I should mention that that third bullet point also refers to assets available to equity holders on a winding up. Mm. Um, and this is this is actually occasionally important. I mean, in in the sort of owner managed business SME arena that we operate in most of the time it's not a big issue but certainly when this first came in and I was working for a rather larger firm um you know the the sorts of multinational groups that we were dealing with these these were big issues so if I could just do a brief explanation mm, so definitely I think most people know what ordinary share capital is I mean generally speaking it's anything except fixed rate preference shares um but equity holders um in this context um can encompass other other forms of instruments. So, for example, um, a fixed rate preference share would not normally be part of ordinary share capital, but it could be part of what's um, referred to as. Uh, well, sorry, could if you hold a fixed rate preference share, you could be an equity holder under certain circumstances. If, for example, that share was issued to you um, other than for new consideration, so it's kind of bonus or partly bonus. Yeah. Or if the return it carries is um, excessive, or if it's convertible into ordinary shares or into uh, other, you know, some forms of loan note and so on, or capital of the company. Um, and similarly, if you hold certain types of loan note, particularly those that are again at a either issued as bonus, have a particularly high interest rate, um, or are convertible or give you the right to acquire other uh, instruments of the company. Um, then all of those things could make you an equity holder. So it's relatively uncommon in our field, but you do occasionally, for example, see things where a bank loan um, is set up so that uh, the, the, the instrument gives the bank the right to acquire shares of the company if there's a default. Yeah. And that could mean that the bank becomes an equity holder. So if although you might hold, let's say, 100% of the ordinary share capital of the company, um, if there's an, a, a, a default or, or something, it could be that for that period, the bank, or sorry, rephrase yeah. that, um, not if there is a default, because the loan note itself makes the bank an equity holder. So it could be yeah. that when you crunch the numbers, the bank is entitled to, let's say, I don't know, let's say 60% of the assets on a winding up at that moment in time. Now, that wouldn't be fatal because you'd still have 100% of the ordinary share capital and be entitled to say 40% of the assets on a winding up. But it's something you would have to make sure is not, you know, I, I have seen one case where the bank was actually pretty much entitled to all the assets if the company had been wound up at the particular time with a particular balance sheet. And that yeah, and I think it didn't qualify. Presumably, if we go to like joint venture companies and stuff, then it could become, obviously, in a case of 100% shareholding, then perhaps a bank holding securities in a, in a lot of cases might not be fatal because you only need yeah. 10%. Yeah. But if you're a joint venture and you've only got sort of 20% each or something. Uh, yes, that then, then things like the Yeah. So um, it's not usually a problem when we're analysing our cases on a day-to-day -day basis, but it is a question you have to ask. Are there any yeah. other shares out there with, with, with strange rights or that were issued as bonus or whatever, and ditto loan instruments. Is there anything that isn't just plain vanilla? Mm. So we need to look at not just the equity on the balance sheet. We need to look at the liabilities as well, really, don't we? Yes. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, I guess the other part of this um, is that you actually only need to have this holding for 12 months. Now it's six years. It was. When did it change? It was like uh, 2017. It was, it was a, yeah. a two-year period. Yes. So... So the original idea was by saying it was a continuous period of 12 months during the two years prior to disposal meant that if you disposed of some or all of your shares on day one and sometime within the next 12 months after your holding had gone down below 10 percent yeah you sold off some more or the rest so the idea of a sort of phased disposal would still qualify um mm -hmm. And I think the general view when they came to revisit it in 2017 was that that was too short a period, that if people were selling off um, holdings in tranches, 
it was usually over a period of more than a year. So the extension yeah. to six years meant uh, essentially means uh, as long as you've held at least 10% for at least 12 months prior to the first disposal, even if you go below 10% on that first disposal, subsequent disposals of those shares will still qualify as long as it's within essentially five years of that first disposal. Um, yeah, I think that's a lot more commercial, isn't it? I, I, I think so. One year's. I've, I've very rarely seen it invoked. In fact, I'm not sure I've actually ever seen it invoked in practice. Um, but it's there. It's obviously useful to some people. Um, and just to highlight, it doesn't have to be a sale to the same person that bought the first tranche of shares or anything like that. It just says if you sell more of those shares to someone, anyone over that five year period, you still get the yeah. SSE. I guess if, if we come back to the idea that maybe we've got a bank loan where the bank has enough security over it that we no longer have 10%. If mm. that bank loan, let's say that bank loan was taken out three years ago, mm. but we've held this holding for 10 years. We did have a, tw with the, the six to the, the previous six up until yes. the previous three. Yeah. We have actually met those conditions still. I even think, I that think bank that's right. Yes, fail. absolutely. So um, remember, we it is those three conditions about the 10% holdings and, and, and rights and so on that must yeah. be satisfied for a continuous period of 12 months during the six years prior to disposal. So technically speaking, you're quite right. If we've held the, sh held the shares for years unencumbered by anything and then we take out one of those dodgy bank loans and sell within that three or four year period, five yeah. year period, I guess, you know, then um, th then you should be okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. And I guess I'm, I'm trying not to talk about M Group, even though that's kind of the, probably the most topical <laughs> thing. Yeah. M, M Group, one of the things was that these time limits are, you know, they're defined in legislation. So if you take that to the extreme and say that you have, um, let's say you took a bank loan out five years and one day ago, mm. that means you fail this condition. Yeah. Then that one day is going to be fatal for these conditions, isn't it? Because it's got to be yes. 12 years in the last six, uh, 12 and, months in the last six years. So, yes. And as we'll see when we talk about M Group properly, there the, the, the issue there was whether they'd held some shares for at least a year. Um, mm -hmm. The the point to me, and I, I do I do find myself agreeing with, um, and there have been a number of cases where this sort of point has been mentioned, that the, the courts and the tribunals will say, it may be that there is an arbitrary bright line in the legislation, in this case, a six-year period or a holding period of exactly 12 months, or sorry, of at least 12 months, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I think the point is that if you're going to have a relief that you, you you have a policy behind it, you, you end up having to kind of enumerate that policy in some fairly specific way. It may be that in terms of the original policy, a holding for 11 months would probably have satisfied the policy, but maybe 90% mm. of cases wouldn't have done. And either you end up with, with something which gives HMRC discretion, which means you have to staff up the department with people able to exercise that discretion, or you simply say, look, 12 months, it's not that onerous, live with no. it, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, and and those bright lines, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, they give us the taxpayers a degree of certainty too. Because Nick, if you talk about your example where it's five years in a day, but if it was five years less one day, the revenue yeah. might say, "Well, you were right up against it." You know, we shouldn't give you the relief. <laughs> and you're like, "Sorry, the line is five yeah. years." Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, okay. So, when when I'm reading this legislation, the one thing that I I don't like about how it's written is when it always talks about the company invest the, the investing company and the company invest the investee company. I always think when I'm trying to actually read it and think it through logically, mm. the investing company. I'm always stopping and thinking, okay, which one in my example is the investing yes. company? Um, so yeah. the 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 other point here is that the investee company, and that is the company that we're selling. Yes. Um, must be a trading company or a holding company of a trading subgroup. So that's kind yes. of what we've already said. So a trading subgroup, obviously, you might have an ultimate parent company. You might be selling a dormant company, which actually owns one or one or more trading subsidiaries. So yes. um, that kind of structure works fine as well. 
Yes. The interesting point, though, because remember, we've talked about you only need to have 10%. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a holding company with a subholding company and say a couple of trading subsidiaries that you're flogging off, that's fine. Selling that yeah. subholding company, it will qualify probably on the definition as the holding company of a trading subgroup. But if your subholding company only holds, say, 20% in each of two trading companies, yeah. it's not obvious that it will qualify because it's not the holding company of a trading subgroup. Yes. So, because it's not, a, yeah, I mean, generally you think a trading group holds control of each subsidiary, don't you? Yes, well, the, and the definition requires that. So, yeah. so a subgroup is defined. So, for SSE purposes, a group is defined exactly the same way as for a Section One Hundred and Seventy group, except that it's fifty-one percent, not seventy-five percent. So, it's, it's great, isn't it? We've got capital gains <laughs> groups of seventy-five. Yes. We've got SSE groups of fifty-one. Exactly um, that. It just makes no <laughs> sense sometimes. But, but that's the definition. So um, so clearly, uh, so a subgroup is defined in the same way, but accepting the fact that the so-called principal company or holding company of a subgroup is itself potentially a subsidiary of something else, according yeah. to the definition. So, um, But it does mean that if you only hold 20% each, then you don't automatically qualify as the holding company of a trading subgroup. Now, there mm. are some joint venture rules. So if you satisfy those, and I think it's five or fewer shareholders holding 75% of the shares, then the the subholding company would still qualify under the sub un, under the joint venture rules. But if not, for example, if the other 80% of the shares in each company, or if it's 50% holdings, the other 50% are widely held, then yeah. it, you, you still get the SSE if you simply sell the shareholdings. That's the slightly bizarre thing, but the company, the mm. subholding company is not going to qualify as the holding company of a trading subgroup. Um, and I, I guess in, in a lot of cases, though, if you've got a trading subgroup, presumably most of the time that that, that holding company that you hold 100% of or whatever is going to be, I mean, what in most commercial cases, what's going to be the difference between selling the entire subgroup or if, let's mm. say, you've got three subsidiaries you're going to sell, which you own 20% each of. Yes. Just sell the shares of the 20% each and then you've got the cash in your dormant. Yeah. Well, haven't you? sometimes it's a matter of actually putting things together for mm. the sale. So because of the way the SSE is structured and because of the way it interacts with the degrouping charges, um, you can technically pull different trading activities together under, let's say, two or three subsidiaries of a new subholding company, which you will then sell, yeah. if that's commercially what you want to do. Um, secondly, you might have that have had that structure in place for some time, so there might be commercial interactions between the subholding company and its subsidiaries, such as loan relationships or something like that, where it would obviously be commercially more difficult to sell the subsidiaries rather than mm, the subgroup yeah. company. Um, so, I mean, obviously, o- o- over the years and over the tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of transactions that have happened, there's all sorts of permutations, um, which which actually, in a way, is why it's good that the legislation is reasonably flexible in this area. Yeah. Because um, yeah. sometimes you also find yourself with multinational groups just trying to decide which country you want to claim an exemption in, because lots of other <laughs> countries have what they refer to as a participation exemption, which is essentially what this is. Um, yeah. And sometimes it is a case of commercially, what do you want to sell? What do you want to keep? And which which level, both in terms of the corporate group and therefore which country is, is the sale going to take place in? Mm. Okay. So, okay. And just to um, expand this concept of trading company, this, of course, is the area where we've got this this concept where although a substantial shareholding is 10% for the purposes of the exemption, <laughs> um, a trading company is defined as one that does not have more than a substantial amount of non-trading activity where it, uh, the revenue explicitly says in their manuals that they consider that to be a 20% test, which yeah. is just silly, but there you go. Yeah, it's like okay. on the word substantial when they were drafting the legislation. They did, didn't they? Um, a couple of other little side points on the SSE then. Firstly, there's it's an exemption that's automatic. 
So yes. in certain cases, you might actually not want the SSE and the obvious one being losses. So it exempts, it doesn't just exempt a gain, which is normally a, a positive, but if it's going to exempt something that's standing at a capital loss that you could use elsewhere in the group, um, you might wish to somehow not pass the SSE test. But yes, um, that that's kind of the, the issue with SSE, that losses are also um, exempt. So... Shall we move on to kind of the whole reason I actually came to you a couple of weeks ago and said, let's talk SSE um, okay. and talk about Hive Towns and sales. Mm. Um, th there's quite a, a few different issues to, to worth that are worth talking about. I think degrouping yeah. charges are an important one when we're talking in various reconstructions and including mm -hmm. on, you know, this comes, comes out in demergers as well as Hive Downs and sales. Um, but in terms of what we're actually doing on a hive down and sale, um, we're mainly looking at um, paragraph 15a, aren't we? Uh, um, yes. I'm just trying to see if I've got some diagrams I can give, show you some people. I've got diagrams for um, M group holdings, but um, I think before we get there and before we talk about the technicalities, let's just talk briefly about... Um, perhaps a more standard one. So if I share my screen again. Yay. There you go. It is so, so nice, people, I have to say, since I've actually joined up with a team of people who understand how to use this technology, because I just sit here <laughs> saying, why isn't my microphone working? And they tell me how to switch it on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I quite enjoy doing these things, but I let Nick do all the technical stuff. I was going to say we did we did, we did that we did that about ten minutes before we came yes. on because yes. we gave you a new microphone. And you were like, "How does this work?" <laughs> yes. Look, so people, new microphone, very snazzy, isn't it? Just makes me feel like one of the nineteen fifties crooners, but um, <laughs> that's probably a little bit. Anyway, shall we shall we move on with SSE? Yeah, yeah, right. So I've down and sale. I've Tried to keep just this example quite basic. Let's assume we have a group of companies, a holding company owning a trading company, and we've got two trades, one of which we want to sell. Mm. How do we do it under this hive down and sale structure? First is we need a new company. We incorporate what I've called here Target Co. Um, and Target Co is going to be the company that we're actually going to sell. Step two, we're actually going to transfer the trade we want to move uh, or we want to sell. So if we think about not, if we didn't undertake this planning, we would sell trade B. We probably have, um, if there's any goodwill in there, we'd probably have at least a, um, a trading profit if it's a post-2002 goodwill or a capital gain if it's pre-2002. And then obviously we've got all the rest of the... Um, the types of um, assets we're selling. So we've got intangibles, gains, we've got capital assets we're selling, phantom machinery. Um, so there's plenty don't, of potential don't forget tax all the, Yes, trade, and don't but, forget all the rules about things like stock in trade and work in progress, which we've not really mentioned here, um, no. but they are subject to completely different rules. I obviously don't have a degrouping, but you do have to think about whether you have to make elections on value of stock and things like yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, so when we actually transfer a trade and all of its assets down to a newly incorporated company, we're generally relying on um, intra-group reliefs. So capital gains tax, section 171, um, intangibles, section 775, um, and CTA 2010, section 948, allows us to transfer it at tax written down value, the plant and machinery. So at that step, we have no tax implications because we're in a nice 100% owned target co um, and we can do everything on a tax neutral basis. Then Bidco, as I've called it here, the buyer comes along and buys the shares of target co um, and the fact that we own 100%, so we have a substantial shareholding as we just talked about. We've got obviously 100%, so clearly meet the 10% tests. Um, and does SSE apply? So the question is, when when are we going to sell Target Co? Do we have to wait 12 months? Can we sell it the day after we've hived it down? Mm. Can we sell it the same day? Um, those are the kinds of questions that obviously 
clients always come up with and i guess we'll come on to a very briefly the anti-avoidance rules as well um but the point is the what's um paragraph 15a talks about and as I, as I say this was all about what m group was saying the timing of when we hive down and when we sell mm. and i think um, in in the example we're actually demonstrating where there isn't a problem generally speaking yes um, so 15 technical stuff up ooh, ooh. oh <laughs> uh, yes this, this I, I quite like doing this and making it really obvious which are the key kind of phrases that to pick out in when we're actually looking here. So 15A has, um, subsection two has four criteria. And this was heavily analyzed in M group as well. Um, but what this effectively does is provided you meet these conditions, even though you might have only held the shares of that target company for, um, a short period of time, and certainly not 12 months, you can still treat the um, the sale as being covered by the substantial shareholdings exemption. And that's effectively because you've at least been a group and traded, or, or the group has um, operated that trade for at least 12 months. So conditions immediately before disposal, the investing company, which is the original company, had a substantial shareholding. As I say, in a lot of these cases, or most of these cases, it probably has 100% of the target company. So um, that's not normally a problem. Um, an asset which at the time of disposal is used for the purposes of a trade. And I think that's the one where I would say we need to hold it in Target Co for at least some period of time and actually the target code to operate a trade from it. Um, if you just, if you hive it down and sell it on the same day, can you actually argue that at, at that time, target code has used the trade and assets for the purposes of a trade? I think normally we kind of say haven't, um, you know, at least raise some invoices, um, do do have a period of trade and uh, the longer the better really to kind of make sure that there's no ambiguity in that sec in that um part of the legislation the next thing is um at the time of the transfer of the assets all members um sorry the company transfer that which transfer the asset were all members of the same group so it might be that you have a group where instead of just hiving it down you might actually already have a hold co trade co and it's hold co that incorporates the new company you hive it across um which in um section c there should still be okay because all those three companies members of the same group uh, and finally, the assets uh, must previously have been used by a member of the group uh, for the purposes of a trade. Um, so in theory, if you have a buyer come along and say, I want to buy the trade and assets, um, or I want to buy this specific trade, the specific division of the company, um, please, uh, and the, but and, and here's my offer and then you actually crunch the numbers and say well that's great but i'm going to pay 25 corporation tax on on a significant portion of this um that that offer's not enough for me to after tax be willing to sell then a hive down and sale could work quite well um and and so we we do look at quite quite a, a few areas of this vat is another aspect which neither peter or i really cover but it's one important one to consider because generally we we, we can fall within the transfer going concern rules um but obviously vat advice will be needed when um when you talk about this as well so um the one thing so i've talked about periods of trade um and i think that's quite important to make sure we meet that degrouping charges that is so what 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 are degrouping charges? We've said we're going to transfer capital assets 
um, under section 171. So when we hive down our trade and assets, um, any capital assets uh, will be subject to um, no gain, no loss transfer. But section 179 says if a com the company that receives the asset leaves the, leaves the group within six years, then we are going to have a degrouping charge, which obviously would be fatal if it wasn't for the additional provision which we have which says that actually that degrouping charge is added to the consideration for sale which is which, which is how this planning works because if you add the degrouping charge on the sale then that's also covered by SSE um and the the silver lining here certainly under the capital gains rules is that actually now the target company and the company that the uh, that's being bought has an uplifted base cost so there's also i think if you're looking at the commerciality of it um the buyer could now you know save a significant amount of tax on those capital assets where if and when they come to sell it in the future so that's a massive advantage and certainly something to be talking about in commercial negotiations, I think. And and just to be clear on this, obviously, this can also arise in the context of certain share exchanges and, and, and schemes mm. of reconstruction. Um, it's not fatal to the test. Uh, in those cases, remember, you don't get the favourable tax treatment if you've um, got a whole or main purpose of avoiding capital gains tax, essentially, to paraphrase the legislation. Um, if you structure a commercial transaction in a way that happens to give you that potential capital gains tax advantage or advantage in, in terms of the taxation of chargeable gains, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was one of the main purposes of your wider transaction. And it's interesting to read the recent decisions in Wilkinson, which is first tier tribunal and perhaps more authoritatively, the Court of Appeal decision in what most people still call euro money. Um, in terms of how you decide whether something is uh, or has a whole or main purpose of avoiding tax. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's worth bearing in mind this impact of the capital gains degrouping rules when you are structuring things like demergers or share exchange transactions. Um, as long as you can demonstrate you're not doing the whole transaction with a main purpose of getting that capital gains advantage, you should not have a problem getting your clearances from HMRC. Yeah, I think that's the point, isn't it? That when we, whenever I've done a restructure that involves an uplifted base cost as a result of this, it's actually always just been a silver lining rather than we're doing a restructure so that we can uplift the base cost. And therefore, it's comes back to well if it's not a main purpose hmrc shouldn't have a problem with it yeah um intangibles I, it, it was more recently I, I, there actually it's it's on the screen there's november 18 actually the intangibles rules were changed to bring it more in line with the capital rules which is so we can also have degrouping charges when we um when we dispose of a shares in a company that we've transferred intangible assets to. So we're talking post 2002 here. Um, and the intangible rules are similar, but not the same. And the big, big difference is that you won't get an uplift in the base cost under the intangible rules, because instead of saying you can add the degrouping charge to the consideration and therefore be covered by SSE as you can with capital assets, with the intangibles, you simply ignore the degrouping charge. So the effect is that you don't actually get that uplift in base cost. So in terms of the planning, it's not it's obviously not fatal. We can still achieve a hive down and sale without paying corporation tax on the intangibles we've transferred. Um, but we don't have that benefit. And therefore, obviously, the buyer also inherits at the original base cost. Paragraph five is the anti-avoidance on all this. And I think this is an interesting one because if you read paragraph five, it says if there's any arrangements um, in order to obtain 
effectively in order to obtain the SSE, um, then it won't apply. So if we're doing hive down and sale, surely we are hiving down so that we can get the SSE. So why why does a hive down and sale work? And what how do we have why do we have paragraph 15A, which says we can do it, if we have paragraph five that says you've just done arrangements so that you do get SSE. To me, those kind of can't can't cancel each other out. I, I think that's exactly right. And when the legislation that we're talking about, because um, really we're, we're concerned with M Group and paragraph 15A, when all that stuff was um, invented, for want of a better word, uh, during 2011, yeah. um, a number of people, particularly people like Philip Ridgway and his team at, um, uh, at Temple Tax Chambers, pointed out that the transaction described as being in effect an avoidance transaction in paragraph 5 is identical to the transaction that is deemed to be, you know, worthy of the SSE in paragraph 15A. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's not even a, a tax avoidance provision in the sense that it doesn't say whole or main purpose of avoiding tax when you could counter that by saying, well, that's okay, because if you're within 15A, you're obviously not avoiding tax. Um, but it mm. actually says arrangements where the main benefit to be expected to arise is that the gain or disposal would not be a chargeable gain by virtue of this schedule, yep. which, of course, is exactly that test. So, yeah, um, it's 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 one of those that I think basically we just have to live with the fact that the revenue ain't ever going to take it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess and generally the, the the commercial reason that you're kind of doing this and that is that the SSE is there to um, promote reinvestment because obviously the I think the point is it's you're keeping all the cash within a corporate structure aren't you yes. um, so that yes. it's not like you're you're doing anything to be able to realize a capital gain personally and have all the cash the cash is still in the company and the SSE largely is designed to enable you to reinvest that cash. Mm. right we've talked an awful lot and we still haven't gone to M Group. So let's jump ahead to M Group because I think this is an interesting case. I think you disagree with it, don't you, Pete? The upper tribunal's decision. Uh, very much so. Um, yeah. I, I, if, I, if I explain, so if we go back to Nick's example, um, just hold it in your heads. I'm not suggesting we flip back through the slides. You had a holding company, a trading subsidiary, and two trades. So you already had a group. And everybody in the world who's looked at this seems very comfortable that if you carry out the planning that Nick suggested, which is basically what 15A kind of proposes, then um, that then that works and the SSE would be achieved on selling that target company, the new target co that Nick um, proposed. Now, here we have a, a not entirely, not identical, but a relatively similar situation, but we haven't got the holding company, okay? So we've just got a single company. I mean, there is, I suppose, a, group, a, a question in my mind of how you get to call a company M Group Holdings Limited. If it doesn't <laughs> That's have exactly what I thought when I was doing this. I was like, well, um, why did they call it M Group yeah. in the first place? Well, I, I, I thought it wasn't lawful to do so. I thought if you call yourself Holdings or Group or something, you actually have to have a group or holdings. Right. But anyway, I'm not a corporate lawyer. If there's corporate lawyers on the line, do let us know what the right answer is here. Mm. But... Um, in effect, so I, I was part of the um, steering group that HMRC consulted with quite over quite a long period before the 2011 changes to the SSE and to degrouping rules, um, because all of that came out of an announcement in the 2010 budget speech that there would be consultation about the impact of capital gains on groups of companies. Uh, and one of the points that was made about the SSE is that that says if you've got a company with three trades that are in three separate subsidiaries, then selling a subsidiary, you would qualify for the SSE. Whereas if you've got a company with three trades that it just keeps in the same company as a divisionalized entity, then essentially you don't get the SSE if you sell any of your trades. And the way the degrouping charges and things were set up at that time also meant you, you, you couldn't really do a hive down and sale. So what is now paragraph 15A was intended to, to kind of fill that lacuna, to, to, to take away some degree of the discrimination against divisionalized companies. 
Um, and somehow in the, 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 the I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't understand how this has happened because we all, and I say all, I mean, there, was a, there were a large number of people outside that initial steering group. Once the legislation was published, HMRC ran a series of very well attended workshops with, you know, tens or hundreds of people probably over the period actually reviewed this stuff and, and talked it through with revenue officials. And we all thought that this was precisely the sort of scenario that this new legislation would cover, a singleton company being able to hive down one or all of its trade to a new co, a target co, and sell that off um, and still access the SSE. I mean, particularly in terms of a company with more than one trade. Um, and it was only about a, a two or three years after the legislation was enacted that the government or the revenue finally got around to publishing their manuals on the subject. And showed that they thought you had to have been a group for at least a year before you could avail yourself of paragraph 15a, which was frankly exactly the opposite of what people had asked for during the consultation period. And we had not read the draft legislation in the way that HMRC now interprets it. Well, I think it's it's strange because why why should a standalone company I mean, a, yes. a lot of the time people say, well, do it in one company because it says as admin of having to run three companies. Yes. And yet no nothing really changes other than no, the fact that you still keep three separate accounts, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it would seem a bit odd to not enable a company exactly. that just chooses for whatever reason to have a single company. So the, the and, and the, the interesting point here is that you, you, you might sort of echo my comments of earlier on about bright lines. Um, mm. and, and the upper tribunal more or less did. They said, well, they drew a bright line. They said, and, and the first-tier tribunal picked up on this as well. They, the first-tier tribunal said, well, one of the reasons we don't agree with H, sorry, with the company's uh, proposed interpretation of the legislation is very simply because the legislation came out of a review of the impact of capital gains on groups of companies, and mm. therefore we assume that it must have been intended to apply to groups. Um which is a kind of a correct statement in itself. It did come out of that review, but it's absolute drivel in terms of um, the, you know, the, the rationale for interpreting the legislation that way, because the whole point is that, that this piece of legislation actually came out of a realisation that there's an, Im an, an impact on non-groups that we ought to be mm. looking at. Yeah. Um, but the other point is that the upper tribunal said something about a bright line. Parliament's drawn a bright line. This applies to groups and not to non-groups. But with, with things like time periods, which we were talking about briefly earlier, there is a rationale. You can say, but but you need a date, a time after which both sides have certainty. For yeah. this, there is, as you say, no obvious policy rationale for dictating that a non-grouped company can't use this structure. And in particular, because has been pointed out by many people over the years, including HMRC officials in, in emails to me, if M Group Holdings had happened to have a, a dormant subsidiary since forever, yep. then none of this would have arisen. None of this would this, have been a problem. Yeah, I find that really strange. Should we should we just run through what actually happened in yes, um, M Group? We haven't got but, too much longer. No. Uh, yeah, I find that really weird that, I mean, why not, just to quickly talk about that dormant subsidiary point, why not just every company in the entire UK, if you're running a standalone company, incorporate a dormant company? That's more or less what I've been saying for years. I mean, that that's, yeah, I've got firms, especially when they are financial advisory clients, who, for FCA purposes, need to trade under one singleton company. So it would be fatal to them for SSE if they decided we want to actually sell a part of our um, business mm. um, and M Group basically applies. But I, there's nothing in FCA that, doesn't, that says you can't have a dormant subsidiary. So it kind of, when I've got clients who buy other, um, who buy other practices through a share purchase and then they have to, for FCA purposes, hive it up, I just say, well, just leave that company there. Don't bother striking it off because if you ever want to do it the, the opposite way, then SSE might be available. So, I mean, what I don't know how much it is, what, 50 quid to actually run a company and do a um, dormant company accounts every year kind of thing. So um, it's, a, it's a word of warning to those types of people, I think. 
Um, but M Group. So we had a 100% shareholder owning M Group Holdings, Peter Jeffries, and he had a, um, obviously, M Group Holdings ran a trade. So we meet the condition that we're talking about trades. Um, what he did was incorporate in June 2015 Medinet Clinical Services Limited. In September, so three months later, he then moves the trade or the company moves the trade down to Medinet Clinical Services. So as exactly what we've gone through, he'd have got Section 171 to transfer the capital gains um and it's all within a hundred percent group so the, that would have been a tax neutral hive down he then sold in may 2016 so the, the dates are the most important thing here june 2015 he incorporates september three months later he hives down and may 16 he actually does the sale and the numbers are big we're talking about a 50 just under 55 million pounds um for the business or for the shares yeah and a 10.5 um, million pound capital gain yeah. or capital gains tax yeah or corporation so tax, we're say. talking corporation tax on capital gains of more than 10 million pounds um and the whole thing hinged on as, as you've already said pete whether there was a group because um i think i have a timeline as well actually yep. that trade and i think this is the point of the interpretation of 15a the trade has always been run by one of the two companies for well i don't, I don't know when it actually incorporated but it's been run for a lot longer than 12 months oh god yes yes absolutely um and so the incorporation happened in june 16 June 15, sorry, the typo on there. Mm. Um, and it was 11 months later that the sale happened. Yeah. The, so, the interesting thing, uh, uh, in a way, about the background to this is that um, they took advice from tax counsel, I believe, or, or, or certainly somebody very senior in the tax world that, you know, th this should be interpreted as allowing this to happen, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I mean, if I'd been giving this, well, it's easy to say this in hindsight, isn't it? If I'd mm. been asked to advise on this, I would have said, look, we know that HMRC's view is that because there hasn't previously been a group, you need to have had a group for 12 months before you can claim SSE. Yeah. And by the time we're advising, if we're looking at a potential sale in May 2016, and as was highlighted several times in the in the description, you know, in the in the discussions in the case, had he waited till June 2016, mm -hmm. a month later, to sell, that none of this would have arisen because HMRC would simply have accepted. It wouldn't even needed to rely on paragraph 15A. You'd simply have a company. Yeah. Uh, actually, no. Sorry, you're no, right. You would, would have had to rely on 15A because the company hadn't been trading for a year. Um, but but essentially, you would have been able to rely on a, on paragraph 15A according to HMRC's interpretation, as a result of which mm. uh, he would have got the SSE. So there's a piece and that the says, case stated that, just it? wait a month. Yeah. Well, the, the, the actual I'm sure the case actually said that hey, both parties agreed that, you mm. know, the, that mm. there was no there's no dispute that it'd been going for 11 months. Yeah. And um you know, sometimes we say to people, your best bet is to do this planning and then wait three years and then sell your company. And if you've got a buyer, that just doesn't work. But when, <laughs> if you were to go to a buyer and say, look, you're going to save me something. I think it was actually slightly closer to 11 million pounds of corporation mm. tax. If we actually complete this transaction one month later, I'm fairly certain most buyers would have just gone with it. I mean, they might yeah. have shame yeah. <laughs> but you're still going to be better off so what you know mm. why didn't they do that was somebody actually choosing this as a deliberate test case that seems unlikely with the amounts of money involved. <laughs> but, I, I, i'm sure it would be that does sound very unlikely that you'd think oh we'll just test it out but mm. um uh, yeah i think it's a big uh, as you say i think they it doesn't seem like the um the intention when this was originally being discussed 13 14 years ago was um was for the result that yeah. m group holdings has produced um it doesn't sound also like hmrc are going to be suggesting a change in 
the way the the wording of the legislation to enable this type of thing either no and and that's unfortunate and that to be honest um i'm not sure how far back it goes but it seems to me that hmrc is not interested and hasn't for a long time been interested in any degree of coherence in the tax code Mm. So, uh, I mean, I, as some of you know, I have spent some time, uh, I, I, my first 10 years of my career in tax were with the Inland Revenue, and I had a policy role um, for some part of that period. And if we went to ministers and said, well, there's a bit of a hole here in the legislation, you know, we actually think this was probably what was intended, but it doesn't quite work. Somebody's pointed out the legislation doesn't fit together the way it ought. Can we tweak that? We would normally get the the minuscule amount of parliamentary time that was needed to actually make it so mm. but in recent years i mean i can think of lots and lots of changes where that we've, we've we've consulted we told the revenue what's needed they put forward draft legislation we've explained that it doesn't work and half the time they say well we don't feel like well most of the time in fact they say we don't feel it's appropriate to go back to ministers to change the legislation we'll put something in the manuals yeah. And then they don't, or they do, but take it out, or they say, well, of course, it's in the manual. So if the legislation says something different, the legislation is prime. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in this case, they're they're just saying this is what we always intended or, or not really discussing that point. But uh, it is an absolute absurdity. It, it it's To my mind, it's frankly outrageous, but indicative of the way that HMRC is acting in policy areas. Yeah. Uh, all the time yeah. these days. The the one thing I did want to mention as well on M Group, which was a um an interesting argument, was that they they tried to argue that one company can still be a group. Yes, I love the school children yeah. example. Uh, yes. Yeah. So so what they said was something like if you if you segregate all the school children, so so let's say you take a bunch of school kids in a in a playground and you split them into two groups, you know, those who've uh, for example passed a particular exam and those that have not then in theory, if only one person has passed this exam, the, the idea that was given was this would be a group of one. Um, and, and it's somewhat compelling in terms of um, the way in which we use the English language. But of course, it doesn't really fit in with the scheme of the concept of a group for capital gains purposes, yeah. either for general capital gains or for SSE, because the definition always talks about a principal company and its subsidiaries whether it's 75 or 51 yeah but um so um, i i, I yeah. feel that this case is likely to be appealed it was interesting talking to i, I think people, so um at the conference you and i were at yesterday um and uh, uh, people saying well i, I you know will will m group appeal this decision well there's 11, 10 or 11 million pounds of corporation tax at stake. I mean, it's worth, it's got to be worth appealing. It has got yeah. to be worth appealing. Um, and I, I, I just find myself wishing that HMRC had the grace to be somewhat embarrassed about having even to take a case like this, if I'm honest. Yeah. Well, we've got other inquiries where we kind of think the same haven't we? So. well absolutely yes yes um i think that brings us um to an hour um mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've enjoyed talking about that hopefully it's yes. hopefully people have um uh, it's been useful to people we are there there is um i mean i'm ACA as well as CTA so i'm within the ICAW new rules on CPD anybody who um needs or would like a uh, cpd certificate to um show that they've got an hour of cpd from listening to us this morning uh, there's a feedback form which i think there'll be a qr code at the end of um at the end of this presentation and there should be a link in the comments as well so um click on that link fill out the feedback form and um we can send you a cpd certificate as well but other than that thank you very much for listening everybody um oh, yes, i do need to go but yeah so th excellent thank you all so very yes. much it's been fun wonderful and hopefully we'll um see you again on the next one thanks a lot thank you all mm -hmm.